morning, First Baptist Church of Fisherville. It is an absolute honor to be able to share God's word with you this morning. So let's open with some prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the blood and the sacrifice and the salvation that you've made possible for us. Father, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to the truth of your word this morning, and that it would be a useful instrument in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. I spent a large portion of my childhood along the Gulf Coast of southern Texas. And living along the coast can be both a blessing and at times it can also be a curse. Living along the coast is a blessing because as a child, you get to do all those things that children typically love to do. Play in the sand, build sandcastles, bury your sister up to her neck in the sand, and then run off, jump in the water and leave her, forget about her to get yelled at. But swimming in the ocean, bodyboarding, I mean, it was a, it was a children's paradise. Uh, that same beach, though, at times could also be a curse. And that same beach can be a curse because those nice, warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico that feel like a bathwater tend to be gasoline for things like hurricanes and tropical storms. And so along that same Gulf Coast, you have that to worry about. But as a child, I remember being able to go down to the grocery store because the the local news station handed out a storm tracker. It was just on a piece of paper. It was about that big, had a picture of the coast along the side of it, had a grid over it. And it was exciting for me as a kid because I just couldn't wait for the 530 news to come on because if there was anything brewing in the Gulf, he'd give you a grid coordinate. And you'd take that grid coordinate, you'd put it on the map, and you'd be able to plot where the storm is heading. Sometimes it would head right at us. Sometimes it would veer off and head into back into the Gulf and head to Florida. But it was exciting to be able to do that. What was not so exciting was actually living through a couple of those storms. Because those storms, as you well know, can be quite terrifying, and they can do quite a, quite a bit of horrific damage. For instance, a Category 3 hurricane can produce winds of about 110 miles an hour, where a hurricane... Four and up to a hurricane, five hurricane, category hurricane, sorry, you're looking at about 106 mile an hour, 160 mile an hour winds. 160 mile an hour winds. The rain doesn't just come straight down when the wind is blowing 160 miles an hour, it's coming across horizontally. That means siding is getting ripped off of the house, the roof is being torn off the actual building, shingles are flying everywhere. Trees are falling over, and anything that is not nailed down or tied down, sometimes even if it is nailed down or tied down, becomes a projectile. At 160 miles an hour, a two-by-four can do a tremendous amount of damage. And after one of these storms has passed through, you're looking at about three weeks to several months before you can live in that area again. Everything is flooded, power is gone. There's not a whole lot left to stay for until they get it cleaned up. And what amazes me is as those storms are heading towards the coast, you know, those winds just start picking up speed. Little by little, you feel like you're being totally encompassed 
and you're being totally overwhelmed by what is going on around you. That wind gets stronger, the rain comes down harder, the siding is getting ripped off, the windows feel like they're about to shatter, and it feels like the whole house is about to get ripped away from right around you. And just like those storms, these hurricanes and tropical storms that hit the coasts, we also have hurricanes and tropical storms that enter our lives, don't we? And these storms come in many different shapes. They come in many different strengths. And these storms come in many different sizes. And in the midst of these storms, we feel like everything is about to fall apart around us. feels like our total world is about to come craving, just crashing down on us. Like we're holding on to what's around us to keep it from flying out, to keep it to just disintegrating. And these storms look like many different things. These storms can take the shape of a health crisis. These storms can take the shape of a financial situation. These storms can take the shape of maybe an issue at work. Maybe just like that storm tracker, we see the storm on the horizon. Maybe we're about to lose our job. Or maybe the storm takes the shape of division in a relationship, a torn relationship that we're struggling to hang on to. These storms take many different shapes or sizes. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, the question we need to ask, what do we do in the midst of those storms? Because in the midst of our hurricane is what is called the eye, the eye of the storm. And right around that storm is the most destructive, right around that eye, called the eye wall. It's where the highest winds and the most damage is done. But what's amazing is, is that storm is giving it all it has. It is bearing down, and then in an instant, it just stops. When that eye reaches the coast, it's about a 20 to 40 mile radius. Everything around it is just an utter disaster, catastrophic. But in the eye of the storm, it's quiet. It's peaceful. The rain stops. The wind stops. You can walk out your house and look up and see the sun shining right in the middle of this hurricane. Peaceful. Do you have that peace in the eye of the storm? If you don't have that peace, do you know where to find that peace? Where are you looking for that peace in the middle of the storm? The church at Philippi was experiencing several hurricanes itself. It was experiencing the hurricane of division. Two godly women in the church who had served side by side with Paul in gospel ministry were experiencing conflict. And that conflict was beginning to reveal itself within the rest of the congregation. Church at Philippi was also experiencing the hurricane of persecution. First century A.D. persecution is a whole lot different than the persecution we experience in the United States. It was a dangerous time to be a believer. If you weren't going to jail, you ran the risk of losing everything you own, including your life. So this is a tremendous, tremendous storms bearing down on the church at Philippi. And what does Paul do? Paul points them to a promise in the passage that we're looking at this morning. 
Let's look at Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen to that one more time. Verse 7, that beautiful promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul gives them A beautiful promise of peace in the midst of these storms, doesn't he? Beautiful promise of peace. He also tells them how to get there. And the first thing he tells them is that we find our peace through rejoicing in the Lord. Again, we find our peace through rejoicing in the Lord. And notice what Paul does not do here. Paul Paul has grounded this reason for rejoicing in a very specific way way. He is not just giving a general abstract command to go out and rejoice in anything that we think might bring us happiness. Anything that we think might bring us peace. Anything that we think might bring us joy. He doesn't do that. In our sinful natures, we have a default, don't we? In our sinful states, We have a default mode. And our default is to put on glasses. We put on blinders, right? And we're only able to see what is immediately right in front of us. And we forget about everything else going on around us. We begin to look for our reason for rejoicing in the created order rather than from the creator. We begin to look for our reason for rejoicing in the horizontal rather than the vertical. And notice, Paul does not tell us to look to the horizontal for our reason for rejoicing. Why is that? Why does he not do that? Because Paul understands that these things in the created order tend to be idols for us. And Paul understands that idols make horrible saviors. And Paul understands that everything in this world is temporary. Everything in this world is fleeting. Everything in this world has the potential to fail us, to let us down, to disappear on us. And if we are grounding our reason for rejoicing, if we ground our reason for hope, if we are looking for our peace in the fleeting, what happens? What happens tomorrow when that storm comes? What happens tomorrow when those 160 mile an hour winds wreak havoc on our lives? Where do we find our peace? 
And just like the storms that take different shapes and sizes, we look for our reason for rejoicing, and those reasons come in different shapes and sizes, don't they? When we look to the created order. Maybe we look to a very specific relationship for our peace. As long as this relationship is good, I'm at peace. As long as we're not fighting or there's, there's no issues, I can have peace. As long as my financial situation stays secure, I can have peace. As long as my health stays in good, tip-top shape, I can have peace. Right? As long as everything is going okay, I can have that peace that I'm looking for. But Paul doesn't do that. Because Paul knows that these things are fleeting and they're going to let us down. Instead, Paul doesn't point us to the created order. Paul points us back to the creator himself. Paul grounds this reason for rejoicing. He grounds our reason for hope in a person. Not just any person. He grounds this reason for rejoicing in Jesus Christ himself. Because it is God who is the only consistent, unfading, never-changing, unwavering reason to rejoice. Everything else is on unsolid ground. It is like building on the beach a house made of twigs. It works for a time, right? It keeps the sun off our heads. As long as the weather is good, we're okay. We can stay in that house forever. But the problem is, as soon as that storm comes up, as soon as that 160-mile-an-hour wind hits that, that grass hut on the beach, it is gone. Instead, we need to be looking to the solid foundation, just like we sang a few minutes ago. Solid foundation of Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice in Christ because, one, He has saved us. Amen? He has saved us. And not only has he saved us, he has given us a hope of a future inheritance. And Paul knew that the church at Philippi could rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are at Philippi, excuse me, with the overseers and deacons. He calls them saints. Why does he call them saints? Paul identifies them as saints because those in this church have recognized where they stood before a holy God. Church at Philippi recognized their sinful state. Recognized they sinned against a holy God. And what they deserved was not grace. What they deserved was not mercy. What they deserved was condemnation. But that's not what happened. They repented of their sins out of a godly sorrow. They put their faith in Christ and they were saved. That is a reason to rejoice. And that was the reason for the church at Philippi to rejoice. They were able to rejoice in their salvation. And the same goes for us. If you in this room this morning are a believer, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, 
If you have recognized your sin before a holy God, if you have repented of those sins and turned to Christ, you have that same reason to rejoice. Never-ending, unfading, unchanging reason to rejoice. So not only do we have a reason to rejoice because we have been saved, we also have a reason to rejoice because we have a future inheritance waiting for us. We have a future inheritance waiting for us in glory. Amen? And Paul reminds the Philippians of this in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is not in this world, and our citizenship is not of this world. Our citizenship waits for us in heaven through the blood and the work of Jesus Christ, our reason to rejoice. And over in 1 Peter, Pastor Brian has recently covered this in our study there. I just want to refresh our memory on this because Peter also understood this like Paul. And in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now notice this next part. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not through the things of this world. Not through that relationship that we care so much about. That relationship we care deeply about. Not through how good we are at our jobs. Not through our financial stability. Not through our health. We are not born again to a living hope through the created. But rather, through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The storms are going to come. The storms are going to bear down on us. And it is not going to be easy. This does not tell us that the storms and these trials are going to get easier. But it does tell us that in the midst of these storms, in the midst of these trials, we have a consistent reason to rejoice. And David was a beautiful example of this. And he gives us many examples throughout the Psalms. But one in particular that hit me as I was preparing for this sermon um, this week was Psalm 13. In Psalm 13, David is going through a Category 5 hurricane. It is bad. It is overwhelming. 
He, he is crying out to God. He is pointing his prayers, his supplications, his concerns, where they rightfully belong, at the foot of the Savior. But it is difficult. He's, at one point, he says, O Lord, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. It's a very difficult situation. But how does David respond? How does he respond in the midst of this hurricane? Verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. That steadfast love there is God's covenantal love. That is his covenant promises. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord. Why? This is amazing to me. In the midst of this Category 5 hurricane, in the midst of this storm, he has, he's able to say, He has dealt bountifully with me. Absolutely amazing. In the midst of the storm, because of the salvation that he has in Christ, because of the future hope that he has, because he is resting and trusting in God's character, God cannot lie. God is unchanging, which means his promises are unchanging. His promises are secure. And it is in his promises that David put his trust and he put his faith and he was able to say, God has dealt bountifully with me. God knew, David knew that God's words never fail. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Isaiah also reminds us of this. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God's words never fails. His covenant promises ring true and they will be fulfilled. And we are blessed on this side of history on this side of biblical revelation, to be able to look back and see the truest fulfillment of God's covenantal promises. We know that that promise has been fulfilled. The greatest promise of all time has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The ultimate revelation of God's covenant promises, Christ himself has come. So we know that peace is found only in the things that are steady, consistent, unchanging, unfading. And that's Jesus Christ. And because of that, because it's in our salvation, and because our reason for peace and hope is in our future hope, we can rejoice always. We can rejoice always. Whether we're standing on that beach like me in my childhood, playing in the sand, clear blue skies, the water is nice and warm, everything just seems to be going right, we have a reason for rejoice in our salvation, not in the circumstances. And the next day when that storm begins to approach that same beach, we still have 
that same reason to rejoice. Always. Do you have this reason to rejoice? Are you looking for peace in the temporary, in the fleeting, in the uncertain? Or are you resting in God's covenantal promises? Look with me at this next verse. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. When we are rejoicing in the Lord himself, when we are finding our pleasure, our source of happiness in our peace, when we are resting in the covenant promises, we are humbling ourselves before our Savior. We are humbling ourselves to the rightful, sovereign ruler of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. The rightful ruler. And we are recognizing his sovereignty. And we are humbly submitting to that sovereignty. And when we do that, there's implications to our relationships around us. There's implications to how we relate to one another. It has implications for how I relate to my spouse or my children, has implications for how I relate with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And a heart that is rejoicing in the Lord, a heart that is finding its peace in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, is a heart that is going to be reasonable with those around him. It will show itself in our relationship with others. And it's going to show itself to the rest of the world as they look in at Fisherville Baptist Church. Paul used there, used the word reasonable. It can also be translated mild or uh, gentle. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy 3, Paul uses gentle when he's discussing the qualifications for elder, and it's a word we're probably more common with. And we also see it in the fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit, don't we? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, Because it is flowing out of a heart that has been changed by Christ. Remember, Paul is talking to a church that is divided. He is talking, or that is having division. There are, there's interrelational issues going on in this church. And so Paul addresses these issues by, all throughout the book of Philippians, he's talking about have one mind. Be unified in one mind. Have one mind in Christ. Be humble. And he gives us several examples of this. In Philippians, he uses himself as an example. At the end of chapter 2, he talks about Timothy and Ephroditus, uses them as an example. But the ultimate example that Paul gives us is in chapter 2. And he gives us the example of Christ himself. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Gentleness is the outflowing of a heart that recognizes God's sovereignty and has rightfully humbled itself to the rightful king. A heart that recognizes how much grace it has been given. Because every single one of us have violated God's laws. Every single one of us deserve condemnation. We deserve an eternity separated from Christ. But it was through the grace of God that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And a heart that has received much grace is going to give much grace. A heart that recognizes the grace it has received is going to extend that grace to those around them. Does your life reflect a heart that has been captured by Christ? Does your life reflect a heart through its gentleness with those around them? Men, can your wives say that your heart reflects a heart that is rejoicing in the Lord? Likewise, wives to your husbands. Can your children say that your life reflects a heart that is rejoicing in the Lord? How about our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, our co-workers? Can the outside world look in on us and say, they are in one mind and they are in one mind in Christ? So we see that we are called to rejoice in the Lord, to be reasonable with all, And then in verse 6, Paul goes on. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. And this command that we see here is a negative command. It's a command against something. Paul is commanding us and pointing out to us the natural outflowing of a heart that is not rejoicing in the Lord. The natural outflowing of a heart that is looking to the created order for its happiness. The natural outflowing of a heart that is looking to everything else other than the creator to find its joy, its peace, its rest, trying to rest in everything else other than the Lord. And when we do not find our fulfillment, when we are not finding our happiness, our reason for rejoicing in the Lord, we're going to feel like we're losing control, don't we? We oftentimes feel like we're losing. I know I do at times feel like I'm losing control. When I'm in that straw house that I've built on the beach and there's a storm approaching and I'm grabbing on to every twig, stick in my little hut that I can grab onto because I know it's going to be bad. So I'm holding on with dear life, trying to hold my hut together on the beach. And I typically fail. And I typically fail miserably to hold that beach together. And when I'm sitting there holding on to it in a storm and it's shaking and pieces of it are flying off, I'm getting anxious. I'm getting anxious because there's something near and dear to me I'm about to lose. I'm holding on to my hut and it's almost gone. 
And that produces anxiety in our hearts. It produces fear. It produces depression. It produces a lot of negative fruit out of us, doesn't it? When we're about to lose something that we hold near and dear. But the anxiety isn't the heart of the problem. The anxiety is a symptom of a greater heart issue. When I'm driving down the road and my check engine light goes off, I, need to, I know I've got to pull off, find a mechanic, and figure out what's going on or I'm going to get stranded. When we start sensing those negative fruits, our warning lights are going off telling us that we've got a heart problem. And we need to stop and we need to check it against the word of God for a proper diagnosis of what's going on. And the symptom, the greater symptom with anxiety, the greater heart issue is that we have a heart and mind not resting in the Lord and that is no longer trusting in God's sovereignty. It is no longer trusting in God's covenantal promises. And as Brian has said a couple of times, you've got promise amnesia. You have forgotten the covenantal promises of God. Christ himself points this out in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 30. He says, O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all these things will be added to you. O you of little faith. I know in those times when I've been hanging on to that, to those sticks on the beach, I have little faith at that moment because my faith is in my ability to hold it together rather than trusting in God's sovereignty and rather resting in God's covenantal promises. Oswald Chambers writes this about anxiety. Worrying always results in sin. When we tend to think that a little anxiety and worry are simply an indication of how wise we really are. Yet, it is actually a much better indication of just how wicked we are. Fretting rises from our determination to have our own way. Our Lord never worried, was never anxious, because His purpose was to accomplish His own plans. was not to accomplish His own plans, but to fulfill God's plans. Fretting is wickedness for a child of God. I know in those times in my own life, when I am just overwhelmed with anxiety, with fear, with fret, I have lost sight of God's covenantal promises. I have lost sight of his character, and I am no longer placing my trust in him. How about you? Have you lost sight of God's promises? Have you lost sight of his character? Have you lost sight of who God is? It is easy to do. And Paul, luckily, does not leave us hanging. Right? He gives us the answer to the anxiety. He gives us the answer to the fretting. He gives us the answer to these things. And in typical fashion, he does a put off and a put on. He tells us what to avoid and tells us what to do rather instead. And he tells us in this instance, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. But in everything, the answer to our anxiety and that second step on the path to peace is that we find our peace through prayer to the Lord. We find our peace through prayer to the Lord. The answer to our anxiety is prayer. But in everything, Paul is commanding us here to bring our worries, bring our burdens, bring everything to the one who actually has the authority and the ability to change it to work with us, to change our hearts in the midst of it. Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Paul reminds us again, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything. From the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go back in bed, our lives should be a life of prayer. A life of prayer. Our requests should be placed at the foot of the cross on a consistent basis. In everything, whether we're on that beach and the storm is nowhere to be found, or whether we're on that same beach and that hurricane is coming through in the good times and in the bad, in every situation, we are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and we are to give thanks. Paul is flipping this issue of anxiety on his head, and he is going right at the heart problem directly because he throws a caveat in there. We are to, cast, we are to pray with supplication, look at this, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. We are to approach the throne of grace out of a heart that is rejoicing in the Lord, out of a heart that is rejoicing in our salvation, a heart that is rejoicing in our future hope, a heart that is rejoicing in everything that he has done for us because he has dealt bountifully with us. And some might be asking, well, why do I need to pray? Why do I need to pray if God is all-knowing. God already knows what's going on in my situation, right? God already knows these things. So why do I need to pray? It's a great question. You're exactly right. God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is all-sovereign in full providential control of everything that goes around, on around us. He knew that you'd be in the midst of this storm before he even created you. Nothing takes God by surprise. So we don't pray to let, no, let God inform God for the first time of what's going on in our lives. We pray because it is a refocusing and it's a recentering of our own hearts. The act of prayer is an act of faith is an act of putting our trust in who we know rightfully controls the situation. It is an act of faith. 
In the 16th century, there was a guy named Copernicus. Um, you might be familiar with him. And up until that point, the scientific community was convinced that the earth was at the center of the universe, right? Earth was at the center. Everything else revolved around the earth. But Copernicus did a bunch of scientific mathematic calculations, did a bunch of research, and he came to the conclusion that the scientific community was just wrong and had been wrong, just like they were when they said the world was flat, right? And so through a series of papers, Copernicus releases his findings, and it became known as the Copernicum Revolution because this was earth-shattering for the scientific community. It was a complete paradigm shift in what was known at the time. Complete paradigm shift. And when we are in, a, in the midst of the storm, we're holding on to those twigs on the beach, and we are anxious, and we are fretting, we need a paradigm shift. We need a complete shift in our model, because our model is broke. We are not at the center of our universe. That position belongs to one person and one person only. And the act of prayer is a constant, continuous paradigm shift in our hearts. It is a constant refocusing us back on the one true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who is actually in control of the world around us. And we are to pray in everything. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to pray at all times because we constantly need to be reminded. We constantly need to refocus our hearts. That is why we need the Word of God. That is why we need the church. That is why we need the regular preaching of the Word. We need to be refocused on God. By bringing our burdens and our cares where they rightfully belong by rejoicing in our salvation, by rejoicing in our future hope, we experience this paradigm shift and we realize the promised peace. Let's look again at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that this peace that's promised, this beautiful promise of peace, It is not based on the changing circumstances, on the changing tide of our situations. It is not based on a situation getting better. Scripture does not promise us that that situation might change. Scripture doesn't promise us that that hurricane might not leave lifelong devastation in that area. Scripture doesn't promise us that there won't be ramifications to these storms that pop up in our life. But it does promise us that in the midst of that storm, there is an eye in the middle of that hurricane, and that eye is Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that storm, in the midst of that devastation, peace is still a promise, and peace can still be realized in the midst of it. It's a peace that flows out of God's holy character. And this peace does not always make sense to us. This peace does not make sense. Remember uh, uh, Becky telling me about a, a conversation with Robert and Brian towards the end, um, towards the very end. I think, I think Brian was on the phone with him 
And Robert said one word, shalom. Shalom. Peace. In the midst of the storm, we can find peace. One commentator wrote this. When we are at peace with God, we have peace from God. When we're at peace with God, we have peace from God. I've already asked you this morning um, if you're at peace. There's a hurricane, if there's a storm in your life, are you at peace? If not, where were you looking for it? But I've got to ask this morning, are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with God? Have you repented of your sins? Have you recognized that every single one of us have violated every single one of God's laws. We stand condemned in front of a holy God. Have you repented and turned from those sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, it's not too late. Mark 4.1 says this, This time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Peace with God is waiting through repentance and faith. And with that repentance and faith comes a promise of peace. Therefore, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are the all-sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing creator. You sustain us. And Father, we praise you and we rejoice this morning that you have saved us. We rejoice this morning that you have made a way for us. So Father, I pray that we would find peace in you in your word, and in your covenant promises. In Jesus' name, amen.